you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Luke, if you would. Third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And today we're going to talk about the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. And in particular, um, I, want us to, uh, I want us to look at what Jesus himself taught about his return, and in particular, what it would be like in the days of his return. Now, I understand this is not going to be an exhaustive look at the end of days. I mean, that's, that would take many, many weeks uh, to, uh, to cover all that, but it is going to be an important look nonetheless. And I want to preface my sermon with a disclaimer. I am not here to set a date for Jesus' return. I, I don't, I, I don't make, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Jesus himself said that only the Father in heaven knows when Jesus is coming back. And I'm certainly not Father God. And so, um, so having said that, though, Jesus does give us some details that signal his, that his return is drawing near. And, uh, and you say, well, Pastor, how close do you think it is? I don't know. That's, that's about as good as I can get for you. I think it's, I think it's, probably, uh, I think it's probably close. Could it be today? Yeah. Could it be next year? Yeah. Could it be in a couple of centuries? Yes. The Bible says that we are living in the last days because everything uh, really past the, the resurrection, the ascension is termed the last days. But I believe that we are drawing ever closer to what you might call the last of the last days. We're drawing closer to the end, and, and however close we are, we're closer now than we've ever been. And so, uh, so we would do well to be prepared for Christ's return. Something else I want you to know is that Jesus is speaking prophetically in our text. And, and what I mean by that is he's speaking much the same way that the Old Testament prophets did. And what, what the prophets would do when they would foretell the future, many times uh, they would talk about something that was going to happen to them, which was a, a near future event, but that event would often foreshadow or preface in some way a greater event that's coming down the road later. And so sometimes they would talk about some calamity that was going to happen, and that happened in what to them was the near future, but that calamity foreshadowed some greater calamity on down the road. Or, for instance, whenever they talk about the coming Messiah, they would, they would talk about a suffering servant, but then a couple chapters later, they would talk about this conquering king. And those two things were very close in, in, in kind of their, their view of things, but they didn't, they didn't know how far apart those two events would be. They didn't realize uh, how far of a gap there would be between Christ's first advent and his second advent, for instance. And so, uh, anyway, what, what I, I, I say that for is because we see in, in both Mark 13 and Matthew 24 a parallel passage and in those passages, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D., but that foreshadows the, the terrible times that happened there, foreshadowed the terrible tribulation of the end. And, and so he talks about his return, and, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And, uh, and I want us to see what Jesus has to say about the time of his return and what that has to say to us today. Now, if you found Luke chapter 17, uh, please stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to pick up in verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. Luke 17, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not turn after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, 
so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I, I tell you that on, the night, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, the first thing that I want you to see is that we need to be prepared for perilous times. Prepare for perilous times. So Jesus prepares us in the first part of, chapter of, our, of our passage in chapter 17. He prepares us for perilous times. He gives us a warning about what's to come. And when you look at both uh, Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13, you compare those to, with what Jesus is saying here, you'll see that what he says elsewhere, uh, that, that Luke doesn't record in, this, uh, in these verses, is that he says, I'm telling you these things beforehand so that you won't be deceived. I'm telling you that this stuff is going to happen beforehand, so when, when, when you see it happening, you'll not follow after these, first, after these false Christs. And, and notice what he says in verse 22. He says that his followers will long to see his day, but won't. Now that happened to the first disciples. Of course, uh, there's terrible persecution that arose in the first century. Uh, people being thrown to the lions and, and being set on fire and all, all kinds of terrible things simply for saying that they're Christians. And thus far, it's happened to all those who have followed after Christ who have longed to see him return because he's not come back yet. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I want Jesus to come back really bad, don't you? I mean, I, I look at the stuff that's going on around uh, this world and around this country, and I say, I'm like, John, even so come Lord Jesus. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I wish that you would come on back and, and make these things right. But it hasn't happened yet. In fact, here are the type of perilous times that we're going to face, and this is what Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 3. He says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. In other words, things are going to be getting uh, pretty bad at the end. And it's going to be so bad, in fact, I think, that Christians themselves will be uh, on the edge of being deceived. And, and I think that this is how this relates to what Jesus says. He says in verse 22, 
Uh, you're going to long to see my day. And then he follows that up with a warning about false Christ. And I think the reason he does that is because when, when you're wanting something to happen so bad, you're a lot more susceptible to believe in just any old thing that comes along. Now, I, I was really hoping that we'd have uh, somebody back here to run the, uh, the slides, so you're going to have to listen to me for just a second without seeing me. But I want you to, to look at this slide right here. Now, I want you to think, what do all those people have in common? Now, some of them you probably don't recognize. But there's one up in the corner, several of you probably recognize, Jim Jones. Um, you might recognize this guy right here, David Koresh. Hopefully you recognize the buggy-eyed guy, the Hale-Bop comic, you remember that? All these people, and I just went through, and, and they're, I, I'm, I just pulled off, uh, I just did a search for people who claim to be Jesus. All those people on that page, or on that screen, either do claim or have claimed to be the Messiah, the reincarnation of Jesus, or God. The one in red over here, he claims to be God the Father and his Son is Jesus Christ. I mean, all these people claim to be Jesus or the Messiah or God. And they have millions of followers. Isn't that crazy? Millions of people follow after these people thinking they're the Messiah. That's what Jesus warns about, isn't it? He said, in the last days, there are going to be all kinds of people saying, here's the Messiah. And if you hear people saying, oh, there he is. Come over here. He says, don't follow after him. Don't go after that. And the reason he gives this warning is because times are going to get so bad that people are going to say, oh, I wish Jesus were here. And somebody say, it's funny you should say that. I, I know a guy. And he, he claims that the, that the guy he follows is Jesus. Jesus says, I'm warning you ahead of time, don't go after him. So what are the days going to be like besides filled with all these false messiahs? Well, look at, uh, uh, look at verse 26. He says, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Now, what were the days of Noah like? Well, you say wet. Well, that's, that's true. But in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible gives us in two different verses, a, a description of the days of Noah in verses 5 and 11. And, of course, there are some similarities between the days of Noah and the days of Lot, because, and that shouldn't surprise us because they both experienced the wrath of God. But in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 11, here's what it says. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Now, out of that and out of what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 17, there are three things, I think, that characterize the time of Noah. The first is an overwhelming sense of wickedness, both wickedness in deed and wickedness in the heart. And, of course, uh, that's been a problem in all ages since the time of uh, Adam and Eve, right? I mean, they sinned in the garden, and, and the very first... Uh, murder happened between their kids. Cain killed Abel. It's always been an issue in the heart. It's an issue in the Christian's heart. We all face that thing. But let me tell you, uh, we don't know what all is going on in, in the days of Noah, but verse 5 is quite an indictment. Listen again to what it says. The Lord saw that, what, that the wickedness of man was uh, great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, the world was filled with wickedness. And not only were people doing bad things, 
they were proud of it. They were trying to figure out ways they could do bad stuff. And it wasn't just like, okay, I've done a little bit of bad stuff. Now I'm going to straighten out my life and do something different. No, it, it was happening continually. They would do bad stuff. They would do this wickedness. They would do this sin. And then they would try to figure out, how can I top that? How can I push the envelope a little bit further? It was a time of great wickedness on the earth. The second characteristic is in verse 11. It says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. It was a time of violence. It was a dangerous world. Has anybody noticed you can't even turn on the, the local news in Springfield without hearing about violence? I mean, it is all the time. Every time you turn it on, there's somebody getting stabbed or shot or run over or kidnapped or some other sort of violent crime. And understand, I'm not saying that an uptick in violent crime in southwest Missouri is a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy here. But I want you to consider this. I got on uh, the Internet, and you know you can find about anything on the Internet. Some of it's right, some of it's not, but you can find about anything. And I got on there, and I did a search this week. And I tried to find out what was the longest stretch of, of peace on earth, worldwide peace. And I didn't get a whole lot of, uh, didn't have a whole lot of luck in my search. There's one article, or actually it's an excerpt from a book from 2003. It was quoted in the New York Times, and it was titled, What Every Person Should Know About War. And they defined war as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. And so here's what they said. Has the world ever had peace? And I don't know where this guy got his information from, but here's what he said. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. So of over 3,000 years, 268 of them have been at peace, and I think that's probably a stretch. And that's just talking about war, okay? That's not talking about the uh, interpersonal violence that we hear about on the news. We could turn our attention not, not so much to the war, but as far as times of violence goes, we can, we can think about in our own country abortion. A war is being waged on infants in the womb, and they're being slaughtered. They're being murdered, and their body parts are being sold by abortionists. And if you haven't heard that in the news, uh, I, can, I can fill you in on a little bit of, about it uh, later. Planned Parenthood, largest abortion provider in the country, taking baby body parts and selling them. That's sick. And that's wicked, and that's evil. It's violent. There are no two ways around that. There's going to be a time of violence. The third characteristic, if you'll notice in verse 27 of our text today, is indifference. Indifference. He says they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was just business as usual. Uh, the book of Second Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So here he is preaching to the people, and they ain't listening. Now, from my own personal experience, I can tell you that sometimes people don't listen to preaching. And you, you, you listen to what people are saying about preaching and preachers, and you will see that a lot of people think that the, the preachers are just 
uh, windbags and they don't want to have anything to do with what the preacher's saying. They think that they're, oh, they're sermonizing. They're trying to tell everybody that they're better than somebody else. That's all nonsense. Well, that's, that's sense for some people. I've, I've listened to some preachers that are like that. But you know what? The great, the vast majority of preachers, the ones that are solid Bible teaching preachers, are not like that. But yet people don't listen. These people were indifferent. They didn't listen to the preaching. And so they were surprised. The Bible says in verse 27, they were doing all that until the day that Noah entered the ark. They were surprised when it started raining. But he goes on to say, in verse 28, it, it was the same way in the days of Lot. And say, now I remember the, the name Lot. I can't remember too much about him, though. What happened in the days of Lot? Well, you remember Lot was Abraham's nephew. And he ended up pitching his tent near a certain city. Anybody remember what it is? Sodom. He pitched his tent near the city of Sodom and in Genesis 18 and 19, we had the, the whole incident with Lot and, and the city of Sodom. And if you don't remember what happened, or maybe you've never read it, what happens is Abraham is, is camped out, and these angels come to visit Abraham, and they say, we're going to destroy the city of, of, uh, of Sodom. And you might remember this from, from some of your readings. Abraham says, but what about all the righteous people that might be there? Are you going to wipe away the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 people in that whole city? You wouldn't, wipe, you, you wouldn't destroy the city because of the 50, would you? He says, no, I won't for 50. And, and Abraham, well, he would have been a good car salesman, you know. He said, well, now, I may, have just, I may have misspoken with the 50. And so then he lowers it a little bit. What about this number? What about this number? Gets all the way down to 10. He says, in this whole city, if there are 10 righteous people, you won't destroy it. Uh, on their account, would you? And he says, no, if there are ten people in that whole city, I won't destroy it. And so the angels go into town, and Lot has evidently become a judge because he's sitting in the city gates, and that's where the um, legal business was taking place and stuff. Anyhow, they come in through the, the through the gates, and it gets to be evening, and, and hospitality was a big thing back then, and they're just going to sleep outside. And he says, no, come, come to my house. You remember, certain remember this story? Come to my house, come to my house. And so they come to his house, and then in Genesis 19, before they even get themselves to bed, all the men of the city surround their, his house. You remember that? And they start beating on the door, and, and the Bible says that they demanded that Lot send those guys out so that they could have relations with them homosexuality. And they demand that they be sent out. And, and Lot says, no, don't, don't act wickedly. And, and he goes out and he's trying to plead with them. And he says, I, I have virgin daughters who have never uh, been with a man. Do whatever you want with them. And they said, we'll not do that. We only want those, those guests that you have in your house. And finally, the Bible says that the angels struck him blind and they still groped for the door. Even though they were struck with a supernatural... Uh, blindness, they still were given over to it, to, to that lust. And they kept trying to get these men. And the Bible says the next day, uh, the angels took them out of the city. God rained fire and brimstone on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know where that place was? Where the Dead Sea is right now. It was totally wiped out. It was totally obliterated. So that's, one, that, that's the most famous 
thing that Sodom and Gomorrah was, uh, was known for is the, the homosexuality, but also in Ezekiel 16, it, uh, verses 49 and 50, it tells us a list of, of different sins that they had. And, and understand, the Old Testament writers would often use uh, Sodom as a picture of exceeding sinfulness of, of various kinds. But here's what Ezekiel 16 says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her, and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Jesus says it's going to be like it was in the days of Lot when I return. So what is that? Well, first they'd experience a sexual revolution. A sexual revolution. They, they cast off all restraints. Uh, Jude, uh, in the New Testament, the book of Jude, verse 7, uh, calls it gross immorality. Not gross like ooh gross, but gross as in a whole bunch. They were totally given over to fornication. There was what you might call free love or casual hookups. There was homosexuality. It was pervasive. It, it was everywhere. They were totally given over to that even after they were struck blind. The, th the next thing that he says in, in Ezekiel is that they were... They were prideful. Now listen, a lot of times we in the church, we want to say, well, you know, the Bible calls homosexuality an abomination to God. It does. But you know what else it calls an abomination? Pride. And we we think of pride as a respectable sin, don't we? Well, that's not one, that, that, that's not too bad, but the Bible says that God resists the proud. That That doesn't just mean that he doesn't help that person. That means he works against them. He, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, so what were these people like? Well, the same as all prideful people. They were haughty. They knew it all. You couldn't tell them anything. If you had a different opinion from them, you were wrong. Really, they had no, no use for God because they thought they were self-sufficient. That's what all prideful people think. Notice also in, in Ezekiel 16, they were hard-hearted, and that hard-heartedness was coupled with materialism. It says in verse, uh, in verse 49, they had abundant food and careless ease, but did not help out the poor and needy. They had plenty of food, they, they could take it easy, and yet they were tied to the earth and its goods. They were not thinking about eternity. They were idle, careless ease. Today we might say they were lazy. They, they, they refused to work. And yet they still refuse to help the poor and needy. You know, sometimes you want to help somebody out, but you can't, right? Because uh, I mean, we've, we've, you go to those, uh, like a, a benefit auction or something, and think, boy, I sure would like to give a whole lot of money, but I just don't have it. Well, that's not, that's not the reason they weren't helping. The Bible says they had all this stuff, they had abundance, but yet they still didn't help out the poor and needy. And I've, I've noticed today, there are a lot of people who call for the poor and needy to be helped. But it's usually by somebody else and with somebody else's goods and money. They say, oh, well, when's the last time you helped out the poor? Well, when was the last time they helped out the poor? Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't help out the poor. We should. We should help out the needy. But these people weren't doing it. This is just, I don't know if I should even share it, but this is just something I found interesting whenever I was reading this. 
It talks about they had careless ease. They, they weren't working. They, they just kicked back, wouldn't do it. A few weeks ago, I read an article about a governor up in, I think it was Maine. It was one of the New England states. And he had, he had instituted a new rule when it came to their welfare system. And here was the new rule. If you're going to get benefits, he said you have to do one of three things. Not all three of them, just one. He said either you have to work 20 hours a week or you have to go to this state-provided training or you have to volunteer a total of six hours a week. Now, these are not folks that are confined to a wheelchair who have health problems and cannot work. These are able-bodied adults with no minor dependence. And here's what, here's what happened. He said, either work 20 hours a week or go to this training or volunteer six hours a week. So that, that averages out to like just a little over an hour a day, right? Not, not a whole lot. We, m most of us work more than that in one day. Here's what happened to their numbers. When that rule was instituted, the number of people receiving the welfare benefits dropped 80%. It dropped 80% because people would not work six hours in a whole week. That was too much for them. These are able-bodied people. Now, I look at that, I look at that and I say, and how could that how could that be? But then I, I look at this and that's what Sodom was doing. They had careless ease. And the fourth thing is indifference. Indifference. And that again is just like with Noah, but if you look at what Jesus says, they didn't know judgment was coming. They should have. But they were doing all this stuff, business as usual. And it surprised them when fire and brimstone started falling. Now, are we living in times such as these? Seems to me like we are. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not setting any dates because I'm not that foolish. I can read red words on a page and I can look at what I see in the culture and they seem to be matching up to me. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about what the days are going to be like. What do we know about his return? What is it going to be like? Well, he doesn't give us a lot of details, but he does give us a few little tidbits. Look at verse 24. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. What is it going to be like first? It's going to be visible. It's going to be visible. There are all kinds of people today who say, oh, well, and there are even, there are even cults who say, Jesus has already come back. It was a secret spiritual return. There's some who say, like these guys right here, they said, I'm Jesus. You go outside whenever it's storming, and you can see that lightning real well, can't you? It's very visible. When Jesus ascended in the book of Acts, the Bible says that all these disciples were standing there and my guess is their mouths were agape. They saw Jesus go into heaven. The clouds received him up into the sky. And the Bible says that angels appeared and said, and this is, this is my paraphrase, hey guys, what are you looking at? Why are you saying they're looking at the sky? The same Jesus who you saw go up is going to come back the same way you saw him rise. How did Jesus go up? Visibly, bodily, with glory, gloriously. He was received with the clouds. That, none of these guys came with the clouds, did they? None of them came back 
from heaven because they're all false. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be visible. You can't hide lightning. It's evident to everybody. It's also going to be sudden and unexpected. One time I was driving along on the interstate, and I was, it was over around uh, the Republic exit. And I was over in the passing lane. I was going around somebody, and it was kind of raining around and, and carrying on. And while I was driving in the passing lane, lightning struck in between the eastbound and westbound lanes of traffic. Buddy, that was sudden. That was unexpected. It made me jump. You ever had that? It, it, it makes you jump half out of your skin. It's like, whew, I didn't see that coming. That's what Jesus' return is going to be like. It's going to catch people by surprise. People are going to be going on business as usual, and all of a sudden, bam, it happens. Some are going to be at work. Some are going to be in bed asleep. And somebody's going to be taken in judgment, and somebody's not. I liked what one old commentator said. He said, no man will foresee it, and all men will see it. No man will foresee it, no man will foresee it, and all men will see it. In other words, you can't, you can't know when it's happening, but when it does, you're going to know it. Also, if you look at uh, what else Jesus says, verse 25, he said, But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, there's going to be an intervening time, and that's where we are right now. We don't know how long that time is, but Jesus said, you're going to look for my day, and a lot of you aren't going to see it. One of these days, there's going to be a group that is. And finally, it's sure to happen. It's sure to happen. Now, if you're like me, whenever the, the preacher I'm listening to reads a, a passage that has a hard part in it, I want to make sure, I want to hear what they say about it. Because some stuff in the Bible is obscure. Some of it's tough to understand. And so, if you're like me, you might have read verse 37 and been like, What? Look at what it says. In answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And I can just imagine the disciples going, Oh, oh. And nudging each other, Hey, you have any idea what he's talking about? <laughs> because, I mean, they didn't get when he said plain stuff half the time. So what does this mean? Well, as I said, it's obscure. So a lot of people understand it a lot of different ways. Uh, a pretty common understanding, this is, I think, this is the way I understand it, that where the carcass is, that's where the carrion birds are going to be. And likewise, where the sin is, that's where the judgment's going to be. He says, man, I'm coming back, and when I come, there's going to be judgment. They say, where's this going to happen? He says, where there's sin, there's going to be judgment. Happened in the days of Noah, happened in the days of Lot, it's going to happen in that day too. I like this, uh, there are just a few sentences here. Uh, one of the commentators I read, I thought, put this very well. He said, Jesus gave a proverbial answer, the meaning of which is that sin courts and draws to itself punishment and destruction, just as a carcass draws winged scavengers. Applying his words, we may see that as the corruption of the antediluvians came, uh, drew upon them, the devastation of the flood, and as the crimes of the Sodomites called down upon them the fires from heaven, and as the unbelief of the Jews of Christ's day caused the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of the nation, so the wickedness of the men of the last times will result 
in the ending of the world. And I thought that's just said very well. And, and I, I think what this whole passage is saying is, one day, you and I are going to meet God. And you, you may say, well, I don't get all this. I don't get eschatology. I don't get this I, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, uh, pre-mill. And all these things, you say, I don't even know what all those words mean. Uh, what do I get out of this? If you don't get anything else, get this one truth. One day, you're going to meet God. Maybe it's going to be when Jesus comes back, but at the very least, when you die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Either way, we would be wise to prepare ourselves. You're gone to the dentist, not flossed your, uh, flossed your teeth in you know, the last year, but you'll do it that day, won't you? Why? Because you know you have an appointment with the doctor. You want to be prepared. That, that's a kind of a, a, a silly example, but when we know there's an appointment coming, we want to be prepared. We've got an appointment with God. You'd be wise to be prepared for it. And you only do that through Jesus' death. The Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means me. That means you. And the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God, in hell. But the Bible also says that God showed his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that if we'll confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Turn from your sin, repent of that, and cast yourself wholly on God's mercy because that's the only way any of us get to heaven. Now, I know many of us here are Christians. We've done that. What does this have to say to us? Well, I think there's a word of warning. We better be prepared because tough times are coming. Tough times are starting to get here. And, man, we need to... We need to not lose heart. We need to steal ourselves for what's coming. Hopefully, you know, hopefully Jesus comes back before things get real bad. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to keep getting worse. And again, I'm not a prophet. That's not a prophecy from on high. That's just what I believe. I think things are going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And we need to prepare ourselves. We need to, we need to be ready because Jesus warned us when there are uh, shysters like these guys... You say, I'm Jesus, I'm the reincarnation. Some of these guys say, I'm the reincarnation of Jesus and Buddha and, and Muhammad and all these religious leaders all rolled into one. Some say there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as uh, this, this guy up here. I can't remember his name. Uh, something Jesus. Um, he says there's no such thing as sin. No such thing as the devil. And everybody that preaches the gospel is doing it wrong. Everybody except for him. Don't be deceived. Don't lose heart. Don't give up and don't give in because you know what? You read the end of Revelation, we win. Not because of us. We're on his team. We're his children. He's the one that's in control. And therefore, you know, the, the mountains may, may quake and fall into the sea, the Bible says. We can still trust in him. So be prepared. Don't be deceived. Don't lose heart because Jesus is in control and he will return. And one of these days, he's going to make all this wrong right.
Why don't you stand with me as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you, bow your heads and close your eyes. And just in the quiet of this time, I want you to, wherever you are in, in your Christian walk, maybe, maybe you've got something going on that's totally unrelated to what I've been talking about. Now's a good time to talk to God about it. But I tell you what, Jesus said in Matthew 24, He who endures to the end will be saved. That says to me there's going to be something we have to endure. There's going to be some, some trials. There's going to be some tribulations. There's going to be some bad stuff we have to face. And many will long to see his day and won't see it. So in those intervening times, we need to be ready.